John's Gospel, chapter 6, verses 1 to 13. Jesus crossed crossed to the far shore of Lake Galilee, that is, the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the miraculous signs he had performed on the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover feast was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming towards him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, eight months' wages would not buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, Make the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and the, man, and the men sat down. About 5,000 of them. Jesus took the loaves, gave thanks and distributed those who were seated, as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled the twelve baskets with pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is come into the world. Jesus said to those who believed in him, If you obey my teaching, you are really my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. We are the descendants of Abraham, they answered, and we have never been anybody's slaves. What do you mean then by saying, you will be free? And Jesus said to them, I am telling you the truth. Everyone who sins is a slave of sin. And a slave does not belong to a family permanently, but to a son. He belongs there forever. If the son sets you free, then you will be really free. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you are trying to kill me because you will not accept my teaching. That has a topical ring these days, doesn't it? Yeah. I talk about what my father has shown me, but you do what your father has told you. Amen. John the Apostle, to distinguish him from the other Johns, all four of them, who receive a mention in the New Testament, was born and brought up with James, 
on the banks of Lake Galilee. And in time, Zebedee was to see both of his sons forsake the family firm and follow the the call of an itinerant preacher, Jesus of Nazareth. His father and mother were believed to be called Zebedee, as you may well know, and Salome, that you may well not. And many scholars think that Salome, John's mother, was the same Salome who was identified at the foot of the cross in Mark's gospel and again at the resurrection tomb two days later. Galilee is an inland lake. Looks lovely on that picture, doesn't it? It's situated in a hollow in the ground and is fed mostly from the north by a number of small streams and rivers. The largest of these is the River Jordan, which has its source in the mountains of Lebanon. And the primary exit from the lake was also the Jordan, which continued south until it entered the Dead Sea, soon after providing drinking water for the town of Jericho. There was no exit from the Dead Sea, as the water there evaporates as fast as the river can fill it. And this means that the water in the Dead Sea is nine and a half times more salty than is the ocean. And if you try to swim in the Dead Sea, you will float a couple of inches higher than if you were to swim in fresh water. And the surface of the Dead Sea is some 1,400 feet below sea level. That's the normal sea level, which makes it the lowest sea in the world. The Sea of Galilee, on the other hand, is 600 feet below sea level, which makes that the second lowest sea in the world. The story of the feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle that Jesus performed that is recorded in all four of the Gospels. Many scholars believe that Matthew was copying Mark at that point as they both linked the event as does John, to the beheading of John the Baptist and tell of the stilling of the storm miracle afterward. John's Gospel was the last of the four Gospels to be written, which is because John was also the longest lived of the twelve apostles. He was the only one who didn't die a martyr's death. He died in the late 90s AD at Ephesus when he must have been in his 90s. It is possible that John didn't think a fourth gospel was necessary and his writing does suggest that he was aware of at least some of the other three. However, he clearly thought that there were some details that had been missed by the other Gospels that he felt it needed clarifying. And in this story, he clearly felt he had to explain where the five loaves and the two fishes come from. 
And he also makes no mention of the death of John the Baptist. And instead links the story with the conversation that emerged out of the healing of the lame man by Jesus at the pool of Beth Zatha at Jerusalem. After the healing of Beth Zatha, John's Gospel then embarks upon a discussion that Jesus had about his power and authority. And it soon becomes clear that that was the context for this miracle. Even though the miracle itself took place at Galilee, 100 miles and a day and a half walk to the north. Jesus had pulled the crowds as a popular itinerant preacher. And many people had evidently been drawn by his warmth, love and compassion. And the Gospels reveal that something of a cat and mouse game had developed between Jesus and the people who followed him. Because he tried to set aside time for himself and his disciples, whilst at the same time, the people just pursued him wherever he went. They were unable to get enough of him. A similar scenario has become commonplace in our own day. As people pursue film and TV stars, athletes, uh, footballers, and even scientists, and the occasional politician. Who get to be seen as leaders and examples of worthy behaviour. Jesus had already escaped to a fishing boat. But the crowd simply followed him along the shore. And so it was that after Jesus and the disciples had spent much of the day preaching, healing and generally meeting the needs of his, this crowd, they eventually realised that they were some distance from civilization and food and drink. And the sun was beginning to head for the horizon. Etiquette demanded that the disciples should offer hospitality to their guests. But what hospitality could they offer out here? The disciples began to talk around the problem. Shall we send them all home before it gets too dark? Where are we going to get food? For all this lot, it could cost a king's ransom to feed all these. And then, just like we do, they finally brought the problem to Jesus. And Jesus asked them, what food do you have? What a silly question, thought the disciples. I didn't bring any, says one. Me neither, said another. And then Andrew piped up, there's a lad here. Andrew had already shown that he was good at befriending others and that he could get them to work together. There's a lad here with five barley loaves of bread and two fish. Oh, great, said the others. That will barely feed us. 
And despite all four Gospels giving an account of this story, only John mentions where the loaves and the fishes came from. Only John mentions the lad. Who the lad was and where he had come from is not explained. Where he had acquired the loaves and fish is also a mystery. All we do know is that he was very ready to share them with others. And Jesus took charge of the situation and he instructed the crowd to sit down on the grass. And the text tells us that the crowd included 5,000 men, but the total number must have included women and children. And it could have been three or four times as large. This would have made the crowd about the size of a typical regional football crowd. Just then, Jesus blessed the food and set about distributing it. At first, there would have been no indication that a miracle was taking place. And most people would have just been taking a bit of food and passing it on to the rest. It may have been spotted by one or two of the disciples that the food was stretching rather further than they might have imagined. But the magnitude of the miracle would only have hit home when Jesus gave the instruction to collect the leftovers. In ancient societies, baskets were woven together from the reeds on the riverbank. And they would have made, been made into a range of different sizes to cope with a range of different tasks. Paul, you will remember, escaped from Damascus in a basket that must have been a quite, of quite a substantial size. We have no idea how big these 12 baskets were. Nor do we know where they came from. The enormity of the miracle only became apparent when they collected all of the leftovers. There were 12 baskets full, we are told. That is a basket for each of the twelve disciples. The crowd and the disciples were impressed. And it was quite difficult to explain the situation in a way that doesn't use the word miracle. They were looking for a deliverer, a messiah. And now they were wondering if they had found their man. I recall coming across a story of something rather similar taking place in 1972. In Ciudad Juarez, in Chihuahua, the region of Mexico. It is just across the border from the Texas town of El Paso. And the, lid, the jagged red line going up and down must be where the president is thinking of building his wall if he hasn't already started to build it. There we go. 
It had become a familiar sight in Juarez for the poor of the town to eke out a living by salvaging the saleable items from the local rubbish tip and selling what they had collected for an inadequate income that just about kept them fed. They were earning a mere five dollars a week for seven days work. They were out of, out in all weathers. A Jesuit priest, Father Richard Thomas in El Paso, put it to his people that they should provide a Christmas meal for the people of the dump just across the border. And so they made preparations for feeding 125 people that they expected to be on the dump on Christmas Day, 1972. And they then gathered at the dump to share some festive cheer and to distribute some food in celebration of Christmas. They discovered that the workers on the dump were controlled by two trade unions. We may have called them gangmasters today. They were each prohibited from encroaching on the part of the dump controlled by the other one. So Father Richard had, first of all, to negotiate for them to be allowed to use the same area of the dump to eat. And they were rather taken aback when they arrived at the dump and discovered that there were not 125 people there but 350. And like the disciples, they were a bit bemused about how the food that they had brought could possibly be shared among so many. Following the example of Jesus, they prayed and then began to distribute the food that they had brought, well aware that they wouldn't have enough. The observers who were present recalled they watched a ham being cut, slice after slice. But, he said, the ham wasn't getting any smaller. And as at Galilee, everybody was fed and there were leftovers. Many of the people took food home and then came back for more again and again. And when they had all been satisfied, there was enough food left over that they were able to donate it to three local orphanages. And this hasn't been an isolated example. On another occasion... 350 cans of milk powder were shared with 500 people. And everybody got one. God has a funny math, doesn't he? My head can't get round that. And a number of other similar events have happened in the years since. Our God has a special place in his heart for the poor and needy. And he will multiply our efforts 
to meet an overwhelming demand. The story would have been interesting had the Bible just stopped there. But there is a postscript. And I'll read that postscript because I think I must have told Brian the wrong verse to stop at and he missed it off. Um, I'm on the right page. I can't even find it now. Uh, 15. The last verse says, Jesus knew that they were about to come and seize him in order to make him king by force. So he went off again to the hills by himself. That's what the verse says. And this is a factor that only John alludes to, although all the Gospels deal with the the issue in different ways. Following the miracle of feeding so many, the people became convinced that Jesus was the rock star, sorry, the Messiah, that they had all been waiting for. And Jesus became aware of this danger, which popularity will thrust onto any of us, given the right set of circumstances. They wanted to make him king, says the text, by force, it goes on. When we are faced with an intractable political issue for which nobody can see an answer, then it becomes a very real temptation to engineer a rebellion to try to answer the question. In the first century, the Jews had schooled the people to await a Messiah. And on a number of occasions between the exile and the coming of Jesus, there had been people who had arisen, who had so impressed the populace that they joined them in an uprising against whichever tyranny was troubling them at the time. And it became almost normal for a king or a leader to arise who was well liked by the people and who were then prepared to take up arms against their existing ruler and replace him with their newfound champion. The ancient forays into democracy by the Greeks and later the Romans were attempted to try to preclude this tendency. But power breeds power. And people who acquire power are filled with huge motives to thwart their rivals and to preempt any attempt to dethrone or assassinate them. This is the force that turns a benevolent leader into a ruthless dictator. As Sir John Dalberg Acton, the eighth baronet Acton, ably put it in 1887, power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. We forget the bit that follows it. He went on. Great men are almost always 
bad men. Jesus clearly saw the dangers of such an approach. Not for himself, as he was going to a cross anyway. But for all those would-be followers who were not yet aware of what they were letting themselves in for. Jesus was not in the business of precipitating an uprising. And over the years since, our history is full of stories of benevolent leaders who over time became tyrants. And they almost always come to a sticky end. One example of this would be Robert Mugabe of Zimbabwe. He was born in 1924 in what was then southern Rhodesia. He embraced communism and joined the revolutionary ZANU-PF party. And he was arrested and was convicted of sedition in 1964. When he was released in 1974, he fled to Mozambique and became part of the so-called Bush War. And he was deemed to be a terrorist. Meanwhile, Ian Smith, the Prime Minister of what had now become simply Rhodesia, had declared a unilateral declaration of independence as the UK government was unwilling to support a white minority government in Rhodesia. Subsequent negotiations led in 1979 to a mixed government led first by Bishop Abel Muzarewa. Oh, these African names are marvellous, aren't they, really? He was considered a moderate where Mugabe was excluded for being a terrorist. And then in 1980, a new overwhelming election made Mugabe the first president of Zimbabwe. And since then, as his popularity waned, Mugabe held on to power with an increasingly brutal grip. Until in 2008, he lost an election, which he tried to manipulate. And instead of standing down, he negotiated a shared government with the actual winner, a man called Morgan Tsvangarai. Oh, I had to work hard on these names, I really did. Mugabe only stood down in 2017, now dogged by ill health, and after losing a further election to Emerson Nangagwe. My God. Mugabe died in September this year, a lonely, isolated, and widely despised man. Jesus, however, was concerned to improve the lives of his followers, not to draw them into an, into an idealistic trap that was bound to end in a bloodbath. He therefore hides away to prevent the crowd from becoming a mob when nobody could control the outcome. A commander in the Thracian army 
in about 80 BC was a man whose name has become famous even in our own day. It was Spartacus. He had lived between 111 BC and 71 BC, and his story would have been known in Judea at the time of Jesus. Soon after, the warlike Thracians had had a dispute with the Romans and went to war against them, which they promptly lost. Spartacus is believed to have been taken prisoner and was made a slave by the Romans. In 73 BC, he led an uprising among the slaves, which became the Third Punic War. And 70 gladiator slaves escaped their captors in Capua, near modern Naples. And they successfully fended off the Roman detachments sent to recapture them. And soon they were joined by no less than 120,000 slaves, men, women and children, all of whom saw Spartacus as their saviour. Rome, always terrified of slave revolts, put down the slaves ruthlessly. And Spartacus was among the 6,000 slaves who were crucified for daring to resist the power of Rome. Jesus was well aware of the power of power. He was drawn into conflict mostly with the Pharisees and the Sadducees throughout his ministry. Repeatedly he had to withdraw to avoid the temptation of him becoming a champion and leading a rebellion. And in first century Judea, there were many zealots. These were people who were committed to usurping the authorities and fighting for their independence from Rome. Some of them had joined Jesus, a reality hinted at by a reference to Simon the Patriot, or the Zealot, among the disciples in Matthew chapter 10. And these zealots were what we would now call terrorists. They had become so disillusioned with the tyranny and oppression imposed upon them by the Romans, what we might now call the establishment. They were prepared to lay down their lives for a cause, and they frequently did. It was a cause that they believed was both just and God-approved. And as a number of political writers have observed during the 20th century, one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. Today, the quest for freedom haunts every aspect of our lives. Some have been abdicating leaving the European Union to regain our freedom, whilst others wish us to stay in to enhance our freedom. Many Scots advocate leaving the Union for the sake of freedom, whilst others see their freedom coming from participating in the Union. And the common denominator is the elusive search for freedom. Many of us advocate becoming Christians as a freeing of us from oppression in all its forms. And helpfully, we have biblical quotes, such as, If the Son sets you free, 
you will be free indeed. But Jesus believed in freedom and offered it to his people. But he was always aware that freedom was very capable of leading you up a blind alley. He was aware that moving from one form of tyranny to another was not a benefit. And violence was never the answer. Alexander Solzhenitsyn was a novelist who lived in the Soviet Union until he was expelled in 1974. He struggled to have any of his novels printed in the Soviet Union after they'd read the first one. And subsequently, they were only ever printed in the West. He was so critical of the Soviet Union that he spent over 20 years in Russian gulags. Although this just became the source of yet more novels. He gave us many insights into the persecution of the Christians there, as well as de detailed accounts of the atrocities that were repeatedly perpetrated there. And during his time in prison, he said this, A prison stops being a prison when you stop trying to get out. You see, for Solzhenitsyn, freedom wasn't an objective opening of doors, but rather an attitude of mind that nobody could ever take from you. That was the freedom that Jesus was ultimately offering. And he did it by carrying his cross and without flinching chose to die on it. Amen.